Hello and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I am David Bax. And thank you for listening. David. Yes. How you doing? Uh, I'm I'm doing well. All right. Um, I just, uh, I was telling you off, off mic, you and mm-hmm. our guest, that I just came from uh, a really fun brunch that was also the most white person experience I've ever had. Okay. First, it's brunch. Yeah. Pretty white. Uh, but also... Um, there was a party favor, or everyone in attendance at this brunch, which is at someone's uh, very nice home in Eagle Rock, mm-hmm. uh, everyone left with their own small jar of uh, homemade artisanal strawberry jam. Man. <laughs> <laughs> Just say strawberry jam, was, but I guess those other things are what are the important thing. Yeah. there was The food was amazing. It was all made by people. And there was also uh, a bloody mary bar like a make your own like it was like a buffet where mm-hmm. you go down the row and do the steps of making your own bloody mary you can control how much lemon how much worcestershire how much tabasco how much vodka how much bloody mary mix you want and it turned out to be the best bloody mary i've ever had in my life so i make the best bloody marys i've ever had in my life as it turns out <laughs> uh, well all right then that <laughs> anyway, works out well for you that's neither here nor there we have a guest so we want to get to get to that quick because we can't waste a lot of time top a show Right. Because the guest has a top of show topic, yeah. which is very exciting. Um, pay attention, potential future guests. Uh, but I do want to mention real quick um, a place called tweakedaudio.com, which is where you can buy professional quality earbuds at uh, uh, in a variety of styles and colors at a low, low price. And if you go to tweakedaudio.com slash pretension, you get all that with one third off and free shipping. Um, and, you know, obviously, we're not just... We believe in their product, but we're not just saying that. To, David, I to, was using their product just yesterday. Uh, I yeah, I use it every day. Um, we're saying that because we get a piece of that, uh, and uh, but it is a, a, a worthwhile product. Uh, also, we only accept sponsors if we believe in their product. I think that's true. I think that might be true. I'm not a hundred percent sure. Uh, but if if you have purchased all the tweaked audio earbuds that you and your friends and family could ever need Mm -hmm. Uh, i don't know how that's possible but say you've run out of um supporting the show by buying earbuds you could also buy something to listen to with those earbuds which is our premium episode with comedian bill dwyer absolutely which is only a dollar 29 and we're doing that in lieu of a donation drive this year uh don't make us regret that choice (laughs) yeah Go ahead and, yeah, no, seriously, it's, uh, and again, like the earbuds, we actually use them. We actually think the Bill's Wire episode is really awesome and worth listening oh, yeah. to. it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun to record. Now, our guest, while you were reading that, our guest was holding up his phone, and uh, I don't know if he was taking video or a photo, or maybe he was just uh, reading a text. I don't a vine. know. Vine. Vine, perhaps. Let's not rule that out, certainly. Uh, what was our guest doing? I'm spying for the NSA. Okay, fair That enough. is the voice... Who, who isn't these days? <laughs> ...of secret agent West Anthony. Dr. West Anthony. Yeah, yeah just thank you. Thank you, everybody. <laughs> Welcome to artisanal homemade po- podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> now, let me ask you about your Twitter handle, Dr. West Anthony. Oh. Where did that come from? Uh, it came out of the fact that just plain old West Anthony is not available. I don't know why. Somebody else has it, and it's suspended... I don't know what to do about that. Boo. I have no idea. So it's not a common first name, West. No, no, it isn't. Uh, <laughs> technically, it's not even a name. It's a direction. Right. Who are we kidding? Oh, um, you and but, Kanye's 
uh, child are both named after directions. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I feel her future pain. <laughs> now, um, but, uh, let me. I, I've also never asked you. Is, is West your full first name? It is my. It's not a nickname. It's not short for anything. It's my genuine real first name, as it appears on genuine real documents like my birth certificate, driver's license, and prison record. Kidding, <laughs> kidding. Little joke there, everybody. <laughs> driver's license. <laughs> um, but no, and. Like, for instance, my, my podcasting uh, partner, Rudy Obias, uh, he has like, Rudy underscore Obias for his mm-hmm. name. And I, I don't want to do the underscore thing. I don't want to do that. I don't want to do a dash. I don't want to put in a number. So I figured my options were Mr. West Anthony, Dr. West Anthony, or Sir West Anthony. Oh, and you I could just, have done West Anthony Esquire. Oh, well, <laughs> I had thought of that one. So, but I, I just put it out there, and everybody uh, agreed that it should be Dr. So, yeah, I like that. It does. You do. You do have that quality too. You could have really stirred things up and gone with Dame West Anthony. <laughs> <laughs> but it's and it's not even. I mean, I don't know if there's anybody out there who actually thinks that I am a doctor or anything like that. But it's it's not even meant in like a, a medical sense or or a PhD sense. It was more in a, a time lord sense. That's oh okay. That's that's what that's that kind about. of doctor. The doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, so what uh, now? We mentioned that you you mentioned Rudy Obias. You are the co-host of uh, the Autorcast, which can be listened to directly from the Battleship Pretension website, uh, which everyone should be uh, visiting. Uh, how are things going with the Autorcast? Uh, everything's going swell. Uh, we just finally, uh, after over a year, we wrapped up our uh, series on Billy Wilder because you know, with directors who have long filmographies, we chop them up into decades. Yeah, and mm-hmm. we'll go away and do something else and come back, but. I really feel this was the first time we had to do it, and I feel like we spent way too much time away from Billy Wilder because we started, I think it was like over a year ago, and we just now we, we finished it, and we're now moving on to the Cohen brothers. Mm-hmm. So, and I've swore we won't keep people waiting that long again. I mean, earlier this year, we started on Alfred Hitchcock in the 20s. Uh, sometime around the end of summer, I promise we're going to get back to Alfred Hitchcock in the 1930s. Now, so you're doing the Coen Brothers. Uh, how how uh, are you going to do their whole filmography, or just a few? That's another one that we're going to divide up. I okay. think with this uh, first chunk, we're going to go through, I believe, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Okay. okay. Now I assume that you already have somebody for Big Lebowski. Here's what you need to do. <laughs> you need to tell that person their services are no longer required, um, and then you need to have me on. Here's why. Because, as I was telling David the other day, uh, I would like to come on and talk about... By the way, this is going to sound really smug, and uh, that doesn't mean I'm not right. (laughs) Uh, I'd be happy to come on and talk about why people should love The Big Lebowski rather than why they do. Uh, I'm tired of potheads championing it. (laughs) And being like, oh, this is great. First off, I just have no patience for potheads in general. But also, just like, like, oh, it's this great thing. It's oh, it's such a great. And just, it's people. I find myself feeling like Professor Frank when he's uh, teaching. I think preschool, uh-huh. and he's using one of those, uh, yeah, yeah, you know, what has been called a corn popper. I believe. Okay. I think that's what Milhouse. It's like calls a vacuum cleaner type yeah. thing with a like a bobble game piece. Yeah. in the center that bounces balls around. Yeah, and so. Professor Frank is rolling it, uh-huh. and the kid's like, "Can I 
play and he's explaining how it works <laughs> he's like can i play he's like no you will uh you will not play with it until you can appreciate it on as many levels as i do <laughs> and uh, and that's how i feel about certain movies the big lebowski being one of them is it's just like you're you're focusing in on something that yes the coen brothers acknowledge to be funny and jeff bridges really sells but there's so much more to talk about with that movie, but you're focusing in on that that one thing. So, once again, whoever but, it is, get them out of there. Actually, I'll come we, back. At, at the moment, as far as I know, we don't have anybody for the Big Lebowski episode. West, I've so. got good news for you. <laughs> I'm available. I, you I mean, know, I understand that you are not interested in marijuana culture and you love the Big Lebowski, but I think... Uh, you should respect the fact that it's one of the great stoner movies. No, it it sure it is, and many more things. But now, but you're just saying you're doing and, the same thing there. You're also uh, closing yourself off to part of the movie by saying I'm not going to talk about the bowling or the or the pot. Now you know what? Since our conversation the other day, I did not mention bowling just now. Oh, I just assumed you did because you did the other day. <laughs> yeah, no, no, <laughs> uh, just the pot thing, and it's mostly because that's what is primarily spoken about. So I would talk about it and think, and I do think it's very funny, and I do think that there's a lot of things that, like, the dude could have could probably avoid any number of his problems if he wasn't doing this thing all the time. Um, and and it is something that like Jeff Bridges like really focused in on. I remember there was a joke when. Uh, any almost any time they're about to film, he would ask the Coen brothers. So, like, did the dude burn one on the way over? <laughs> like, and just and then when if they said yes, he would like rub his eyes and make him really red, and and it would change his performance. So it is it is definitely an aspect that they were concerned about, but that that seems to be what everybody focuses on, and nothing having to do with like the film noir thing and and all Raymond that. Chandler. Yeah, and so forth. Yeah, that I mean that is definitely something that I plan on on highlighting when I talk about it. Even right down to the door gag, where the dude, uh, you know, in a uses a comical n- amount of nails to nail a board uh-huh. into his floor so he can prop a chair up against the door, and then the door opens and it falls out, and everyone's like, "Ah, the dude, what an idiot!" But it's like, "Well, yeah, but here's the thing: doors don't." A- he had every reason to think it would work because doors don't open the way it opened right Except in that he, way he lives there and has presumably for a long long there, time there is that but <laughs> in the but that's the thing there's only one movie in which a door opens outward and that's double indemnity it opens outward into a hallway because someone needs to hide because to in the movie someone it. needs to hide behind it and so i feel like my first thought was like uh, did they mean to pay homage to that in a, in a roundabout way and I, my first thought is no and then i remember who i'm talking about and the answer might be yes Oh yeah, I mean, on our we, the uh, Raising Arizona episode, which just dropped today, I pointed out, and I guess nobody else has noticed it. I don't know if you guys have, but in the scene in the uh, the men's room of the gas station where the, uh, the the brothers are putting just ridiculous amounts of pomade in their hair, <laughs> mm-hmm. on the door of the men's room behind them, you see the letters O P E and P O E. Oh, peace on earth and purity of essence and yeah. all that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, well, that was actually not the top of the show topic, but I'm just saying I'm available. <laughs> David, you're going to be on soon. Yeah, I've already recorded. Oh, uh, you've already recorded my okay. my appearance as uh, as the Barton Fink expert. <laughs> All right. I don't know if that's the right word, but uh, I do love Barton Fink, and I've nominated myself for a film in the second round once they whenever they get to burn after reading. Intolerable cruelty. I have to assume, right? <laughs> no, I, I just said 
You didn't hear. I didn't hear you not say bowling. You didn't hear me actually say burn after reading. Okay. All right. What did you want to talk about? Oh, well, just a couple of things basically related to the subject that we're all here to discuss with our mouths, which is uh, film music. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things was that it came to my attention that the uh, the BBC, all during the month of September, they're going to be running a whole bunch of film music related programs, which uh, is really exciting to me. If uh, anybody has access to uh, BBC programming, I would definitely recommend you check uh, some of that stuff out because they're just all month on BBC three and four and however many BBCs they have, they're going to be doing all kinds of programming. I think that's, that's pretty remarkable. I I wish somebody was doing something like that around here. Yeah. But I don't know. I did go to a Comic-Con panel about superhero music. Yeah. I remember you mentioning that. I thought that was, that was pretty interesting. That was one hour long. (laughs) Oh, well, one hour is better than nothing. Fair enough. I mean, the the year that I went to Comic-Con, uh, 2010 i managed to attend a panel with uh, danny elfman that Ooh. was that was really cool that was where we met for the first time yeah it right was. after that panel i didn't get to ask him the question that i wanted to ask him but that's which okay. was what well just about because um, he and uh, his longtime uh, collaborator uh, steve bartek you know they were he bartek played lead guitar in oingo boingo which was danny elfman's old band and he works on orchestrations for danny elfman now in his his career as a composer so they worked on the score for that Bernard Herrmann originally composed for Psycho when Gus Van Sant did his shot-for-shot remake. Mm -hmm. And I'd always wondered if they tried to duplicate not just Herrmann's music, but the conditions under which it was recorded as slavishly as Gus Van Sant tried to duplicate all the elements that Hitchcock did when he was, you know, shooting the film. Hmm. In terms of, I mean, did they use the same number because it's not like a quartet it's a string section did they use the same number of musicians did they use the same uh, studio did they use analog equipment or digital did they try to duplicate microphone placement it's nerdy as hell uh-huh. i know and maybe a lot of people would have been fed up with me for trying to ask it but i i'm really curious about no, that i think people would have been See, people at comic-con are dying for an interesting question in the q a i have so, some people might have been annoyed but i i don't think danny elfman would have been one of them i oh think no. he would have been very excited to answer can that I, yeah can i tell a, a story real quick um from last year's comic-con that i probably told on the podcast at the time but um about the funniest and worst question asker ever uh. which was <laughs> I, I i wish i'd been recording him so i could actually it's not I'm obviously not going to take as long as he did but it was at the person of interest panel, which I was only there because I wanted to see the revolution uh, pilot afterward. Um, and this guy comes up and he just starts talk. He starts prefacing his question, but he's just talking and talking and talking. And there starts to be a rumble from the co- from the crowd, and uh, and then he he realizes the crowd is rumbling. He's like, "What?" And they're like, "Ask your question." He's like, "Oh, oh, sorry." So then he starts again. He's going to ask the question. He takes another. <laughs> starts prefacing and prefacing, going in and again. Uh, finally, some people are like, ask your question. And he goes, okay, so I guess my question is, is your show about, is there a God? <laughs> man, oh, man. All right. So that's the BBC. I wish the BBC, I'm sure they can't do this. There are probably rights reasons, but I wish you could like at least like rent or buy BBC programs on iTunes or something after they've aired the way you can with certain network programs here. Well, I think you can, they stream it over the internet. Okay. 
Um, but even with that, it's only, I think it's only for like limited periods of time. Mm-hmm. So you have to get on that wagon as soon as possible because then at a certain point it'll be gone. I know there was a documentary, an audio documentary they did about Jeff Lynn, the leader of uh, ELO, one of mm-hmm. my, my musical heroes. I love that guy. And I didn't get in under the wire, so I wasn't able to hear it. <laughs> but I mean, BBC radio podcasts, like almost everything, I listen to. I listen to In Our Time with Melvin Bragg. I listen to Thinking Aloud with Laurie Taylor. Start the Day sometimes. There's a bunch of BBC radio shows that I listen to regularly as podcasts. I wish I could do the same, I guess, with BBC television programming. Yeah, well, so in September, I'm just going to be on the lookout online for all of this stuff because I really want to hear as much of it as I can. So, But uh, so now the other thing is a thing that kind of a current news item. I, I haven't even actually seen very much opinion about it. I... I have my own opinion about it, and it's that uh, with all the stuff going on around the next episode of Star Wars, which is, what, seven? It'll be now? seven, yeah. Yeah, and we know J.J. Abrams is directing it, and just recently uh, came the news that they are, in fact, going to get John Williams to write the score for the next Star Wars movie. I don't know if it's going to be the next three, but he's definitely on board for episode seven. So, and... Considering that it's J.J. Abrams, and he's always been doing stuff with Michael Giacchino, and mm-hmm. it's, uh, I think, a fairly successful collaboration. Very much so. I, I like Giacchino's music. Uh, I can't stand the, the annoying pun titles that he puts on all of them when he releases soundtrack albums. <laughs> I don't think I've noticed. Oh, okay. Well, that's, yeah, it's just something that gets on my nerves. But Real I, quick, I, did, you ever, did you ever see the, uh, the Touch of Evil soundtrack? In which uh, I might have mentioned this last time you were on, in which Henry Mancini titled the track "Orson Around." Oh God! <laughs> Just cut it out, everybody. See, Seriously, I, I am I a swear. sucker for that kind of stuff. I know you are. I thought you might. Enjoy I it. Just, you know, if I was, I always say that if I was a millionaire and I could do whatever I wanted with my money, I would open a hair salon just so I could call it. I don't have time for your fucking puns. <laughs> But uh, I would have been very interested to to hear what Giacchino could bring to a Star Wars movie. Mm-hmm. And now it turns out that uh, we're going to get John Williams. And I know a lot of people are, are very excited about that. Uh, of course, he did the original uh, trilogy, which was magnificent. And then he did the prequel trilogy, which, like the prequel trilogy itself, I found lackluster. I think that as far as the Star Wars movies are concerned, I think John Williams is kind of played out at this point hmm. you know with the uh, this does the, th- the three prequel movies there's definitely a lot of music in them but i really didn't hear much in any of those scores that really excited me uh i think the the love theme was interesting the duel of the fates theme i thought was really good uh anakin's theme i thought was it was kind of cute the way he dovetailed in the the darth vader theme but for the most part, there's just a whole lot of other stuff in there that I didn't think was up to the standards of the original trilogy. Did something? So, yeah, I gotta turn something off. So go ahead. Okay. Well, um, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm trying to think if uh, there's very little music from the prequels that I can call up. I mean, there's that exactly. thing. There's a thing from. I think it was only the first one that had the choral element of people singing uh, words that were yeah, uh, apparently that was, Sanskrit. That was Duel of the Fates. Okay, yeah. I, I liked I liked that. It's really good. But, you know, um, I mean, do you think that it's just returning to Star Wars that um, uh, was, uh, I, I guess, d- diminished returns for him? Or do you think John Williams himself has lost something? 
Uh, it's the latter. Actually, I, I really haven't heard anything super interesting from him for a while. I mean, maybe not since Nixon in 1995. I almost picked something from Nixon today. Um, but, you know, I, I do you said like, it, but I think that maybe the piece of music from any movie that creeps into my head, whether or not I've seen the movies in months, is the Harry Potter theme. Right. I, I think that's pretty amazing stuff. I okay. do I do like Catch Me If You Can, and I think he does really good work in, mus- in uh, Munich. Yeah, there's... There's some good stuff in Munich, but nothing that really stands out. Uh, catch me if you can. Yeah, I like that that opening uh, theme music over the played over the the credits, no. and then there wasn't a whole lot else. Uh, the same thing with uh, the terminal that he did like right around the same yeah. time. Uh, I just I just feel like there's it's just diminishing returns. And also, you're right. The Harry Potter theme mm-hmm. is is interesting and playful, but then there's all the other music in the no. movie, and none of it felt memorable to me. And so. This is this is where I, I start to worry now because you know they're they're trying to reboot this Star Wars franchise and I know they're going to try and take it into probably a million different directions and see how much uh, money they can they can milk out of it uh, and I I'm still looking forward to the movies but I just feel like it's time to to inject as much new blood as they possibly can with this thing right it's it's George Lucas no longer has any input he's merely inspiration. Um, so it's a new writer director. They, I mean, I think they're bringing back, I think like Harrison Ford and Carrie Fisher and stuff, right? But not in any kind of major role. I don't even know what they're doing with that. And that's, you know, I don't even know if that's confirmed uh, anymore. I knew it was a rumor, and so, you know, presumably there will be new characters, and it's just like, okay, it takes place basically in the Star Wars universe. That can be, but with, like you said so much new blood that why not do this too? I'm sure that uh, Michael, uh, how do you say it again? Giacchino? Giacchino. Like, I think he has enough reverence for the John Williams theme and score that he might try to emulate that a little bit while also bringing in his own thing, which could be probably said of what of how J.J. Abrams is going to do it. And so it just, it does feel like like either go all in or not. Yeah. And as, as- yeah, I haven't heard for sure anybody confirmed from the original movies coming into this movie. I will say, though, uh, Harrison Ford, if you're on board for an Expendables movie and you can't play Han Solo one more time, fuck you. <laughs> I was talking. So, well, how much money is he asking? Because apparently Bruce Willis wouldn't do Expendables 3. He, I don't know if you heard about this. I did hear about it, yeah. <laughs> that Sylvester Stallone called him lazy and greedy on Twitter or something? Yeah. <laughs> Well, and, and, and giving celebrities Twitter is like, it's the greatest thing that ever happened to us. Is it? Oh, is it? <laughs> and the worst thing that's ever happened to them. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man. I was so, talking with, I was talking with a friend of the show, Jason Eakin, the other day about a couple of things. One was Harrison, speaking of diminishing returns, Harrison Ford. Uh, I could probably stop talking there, but just. <laughs> he was very good as Branch Rickey in 42 the the jackie robinson oh, okay. that came out earlier this and you know year. what he's very good in morning glory yeah that's true that's and that's another little scene movie actually i think more people saw 42 it, it did fairly well at the box office but yeah morning glory kind of fizzled and i thought yeah that's it's a it charming was, little it, movie yeah that's exactly the word that i was going to use you're right that's well, I, I like the movie and i like harrison ford in it i like his uh his banter and relationship with diane keaton in the movie it was cute. yeah what was the movie he did like Five or six years ago, that no one saw with Brendan Fraser, where they were doctors. It like came and went. Oh, and I've, I've actually heard 
good things about it from the few people who actually saw it. I I don't remember something. Yeah, I don't remember the name of it either. Something is is the word shiny in there. It was like extraordinary, extraordinary, extraordinary measures. Extraordinary measures. That's okay. what I think that's it. I, I remember seeing billboards and being like, "Oh, they're putting a lot of money into this made-for-TV movie." <laughs> like, yeah. it, it does not look like a theatrical movie. But people have said that it's actually pretty good. But like, I saw, I saw uh, the new Indiana Jones, and then any trailer that I've seen for Ender's Game, and the trailer for this uh, straight-to-DVD. It should be uh, Wall Street ripoff paranoia. paranoia, and then I in Cowboys and Aliens, he's fine. But Are we we're sharing the title. I think it might be Cowboys and or Aliens. Cowboys yeah, that's, aliens. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Cowboys with Aliens. Yeah. Cowboys Seats. and Aliens and Ted and Alice, I think, is what it's called. Right. Cowboys but Aliens. I think it's um, <laughs> Cowboys versus, Cowboys versus Aliens, also known as CVA Requiem. <laughs> Oh, good times. Uh, but he should be better in that than he is. I don't think he's necessarily... I don't think he's a bad actor. I, I just know. think he's bored. He seems so bored. Morning Glory, he was actually doing something a little different. He's still playing kind of the, the, the cranky guy, but they there was something for him to do as opposed to just be, you know, another action thing. Like, uh, he's... He's like seventy, right? Yeah, right, they're right around there. Yeah, and just you don't have to be regardless. Regardless of the whole Expendables thing, <laughs> you, the, which maybe one could say shouldn't happen in general. It's yeah. you know Expendables three. Look at us, we're relevant. Yeah, uh, it just he. This should be when he is moving into a new phase in his career, one that could be tremendously interesting that's why i liked him in 42 playing mm -hmm. branch ricky he's basically playing somebody who's roughly his own age yeah and so he's just kind of a, a crotchety but encouraging geezer who's you know mentoring jackie robinson i thought he did a fine job in that movie yeah but and so but yeah to, so i guess to go back to star wars it is i'm sure john williams will do fine at best i I, I also, aside from Duel of the Fates, I don't remember anything particularly, you know, from the... the but maybe, you know what, maybe J.J. Uh, Abrams, like, maybe the new blood there will reinvigorate John Williams, but... Maybe he'll push him. Maybe Abrams will, will push him and say, you know, Bill, Williams will come up with something and Abrams will say, eh, let's go back and try again. <laughs> but there is the Maybe that's what he needs. There is the possibility, and I think I think David, you and I talked about this a long time ago when we talked about like burnout or fade away uh, when it comes to art, um, and that uh, that maybe certainly I think with directors and maybe even with actors and, and such, um, I think you you can become reliant on your trademark or your your bag of tricks, and you go from being this not necessarily cutting edge, but this this invigorating, fun, full of life vital thing into just this car this copy of yourself uh i do i one of the examples uh one of my picks for for music today we will i will be covering that okay well let's get the um i'll, I'll first i'll say this i'm not necessarily conversant enough in either star wars or film music to really have a point of view but i feel like i disagree with you guys and i'm actually kind of excited about john williams doing star wars I don't. I, I can't really back it up that much because. Wes, what do you think of the music in Lincoln? I'm sorry to interrupt. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Uh, and anyway, but uh, I, I say that I'm not very good at talking about film music, which is going to be tough for today. But I think was it was it the last time you were on West that we did this before, or have you been on the show in between? Uh, uh, well, actually, I, I he I'm, was on to talk about um, the sight and sound list. Okay, that's right. Okay, so two times ago when you were on, we did this where we picked some of our favorite pieces of music, and I feel like. I kind of exhausted a lot of mine in those four because I, I'm not, I'm not saying I dislike music. I'm saying that it doesn't, I don't tend to have lists. I have, I have a tougher time remembering music than Mm. I do other elements of, of cinema. Uh, but, uh, I'm I'm actually glad we're going to do this again. Um, cause it, uh, allowed me to find some little pieces of music. Uh, they're more recent than some of yours. Um, which is makes me feel like uh, I don't know. Uh, well, like from a the '80s, I think you'll be fine. Okay, um, but uh, I, I'm actually kind of looking forward to this discussion. But I just wanted to give this sort of disclaimer that I'm not necessarily good at talking, at articulating or verbalizing how I feel about music. So that said, let's get into it. Who should go? Who should go first? I don't know. We didn't. Dis- we should have discussed this beforehand. I who feel wants like, to go first? I feel like alphabetical. We go Anthony, Bax, Smith. Okay. Okay, uh, that's fine. Um, that's great because actually, the the I really wanted to start off with the, this one. Uh, it's one of my my favorite of the more recent composers, a guy named John Bryan, who you know, started out in the uh, rock and roll field. Uh, you know, he had been in some bands in the eighties and nineties, uh, such as uh, the Bats and the Grays, and he played with Jellyfish for a while with uh, Jason Faulkner, and then he began uh, moving into producing. Uh, for like Amy Mann and uh, Fiona Apple, I believe he produced some of her stuff as well, and then somehow he got into uh, writing film scores. Well, uh, I, um, another thing we didn't discuss is that we need to um, leave a second for me to drop in the music. Oh, indeed, so yes. whenever you want the audience to hear the music, let me know, and I'll oh, yeah, time yeah, I'm I'm gonna lead up to, to okay, that, good. <laughs> so that, that was that was way we did it last time. Okay, but um. I think a lot of people might be familiar with uh, the stuff that John Bryan did for Paul Thomas Anderson, uh, notably his first uh, few movies like uh, Magnolia and Punch Drunk Love. And yeah, if you listened to the last episode like this we did, you heard music from Punch Drunk Love as one of my choices. Yeah. And so the piece that I'm going to play now uh, for everybody is from a movie just uh, came out last year. I think that, uh, David, you agree with me that it was the the best animated movie of 2012. I agree. Uh, It's uh, Paranorman, which I absolutely loved this movie. It it was uh, heartfelt. It was also uh, hysterically funny in places, and it was also kind of creepy and scary in Mm -hmm. in spots. And Uh, Yeah, and it had... um... It, it was more open to the darkness of its premise than it would have been if it had been produced by a major studio. Right. Very much so. Yeah. It was more morbid, I guess is what I'm saying. And you can all watch it right now. It's streaming on uh, Netflix. Yeah. So you can, you know, you don't even have to wait for them to send you something. You can go ahead and watch it right now. But, um, and one of the, the things that I liked about it music wise was in the, the opening scene where uh, Norman is watching an old eighties horror movie on, uh-huh. on TV and the, the cheesy eighties synth horror movie music <laughs> was just pitch perfect. I'm not a big horror fan by any stretch of the imagination, but I've been subjected to enough slasher films from the eighties that I know how 
crappy that music sounds and it was just it was so spot on it was hilarious hmm. but um this particular piece of music comes after the the opening title it's the scene where norman is walking to school and you see the full extent of uh what his uh his capabilities are as it were i'm not going to necessarily give it away but this piece of music is just it's so uh so lovely and so melancholy uh it's just got a mood to it that i I hesitate to say this. I, maybe it's getting a little too personal, but this is probably the single piece of music that comes closest to what it sounds like in my head all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is from Paranorman by John Bryan. This is called Norman's Walk. Okay, so that was Norman's walk. Yeah, uh, I when so you we, we each uh, sent each other our picks, and I listened to your guys uh, yesterday, and and Wes the the stuff that you sent you just you didn't say what the, what it was from, 
And <laughs> oh. so when I saw Norman's walk, my first I was like, Norman. Norman right. Bates. Norman Bates? <laughs> okay, maybe. I mean, we did do a whole episode about Bernard Herman, but what the hell? And then I heard that. I was like, oh, it's from Paranormal. And it was, the, you, uh, the first word I thought of was melancholy. But it, I was, I struggled to find the right word because, and then when you said lovely, that's the way to describe it. It just, it just brought a smile to my face, but a vaguely sad one, but not totally. There's a bittersweet quality to it. It's just such a lovely piece of music and it put me in a good mood but not necessarily a happy mood mm-hmm. it's it's my single favorite piece of film mu- music from last year so uh, uh, i just i play it o- over and over again i i found um listening to because i was listening to like all our picks uh just this afternoon uh in in preparation and i found that more so maybe than anything else uh and maybe this is because of john bryan has this um background of being you know um, tied in with like the pop music world as well. Um, this song uh, felt more like it could be a song, more like it like is ready for lyrics than yeah. anything else that you'll mm-hmm. that will play. Today. Definitely. Okay, uh, I right. guess I'll go next. Uh, I'm also gonna go. I'm gonna go chronologically in my picks. So um, I'm gonna start with 1986. Um, uh, and and now last time we did this, I I think when we were talking about Gremlins, uh, but also in a, in a couple of ways, the 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 word synth kept coming up uh, mm-hmm. in in terms of music, and so I decided to pick something that is uh, incredibly synthy from maybe one of the synthiest soundtracks yeah. in cinema history, uh, and it's called Graham's Theme from Manhunter. Let's hear it now.
Okay, so um, the thing I wanted to say about it, and the reason, the main reason I picked it, is because I've been thinking a lot about Manhunter the past couple of years, really, since I saw Drive, and then having seen Only God Forgives, and then also having seen um, uh, NBC's Hannibal, which is you know from uh, a lot of the same source material. Uh, but um, what really strikes me is that the first time I saw Manhunter, which was probably twelve or thirteen years ago. Um, the the music sounded incredibly dated to me, mm-hmm. and with trends in music being what they are, I find I feel like that music that we just heard feels less dated now than it did in two thousand. Mm-hmm. Because with you know soundtracks like Drive and just if you listen to you know um, what's you know a lot of what's going on in in I guess hip pop music like you know synthy stuff it, it's not it, it's really uh, at the forefront it really feels yeah. like the 80s again with bands like cut copy or uh, churches um doing uh really synth heavy stuff uh pop stuff and uh i uh, uh i i just I, I thought that would be a good topic of conversation plus i really like the the track a lot of stuff is coming back the, the 80s stuff the things that people were doing in the 80s is coming back i just uh i just heard the new album from uh an artist named meyer or mayor hawthorne yeah 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 and his new album basically it sounds like he's just picked up a bunch of those sort of uh obscure steely dan mystery chords that they used to use on all their albums and then he's using that on his album mm-hmm. um and in, as far as 80s sounds i mean i remember just like earlier in the the past decade there was like suddenly there were a bunch of bands that were sounding like early XTC. And that was a sound I never thought was going to come back. And then all of a sudden, the bands like Block Party and Kaiser Chiefs and Dogs Die in Hot Cars. I don't know if anybody remembers that band. <laughs> I horrible, remember them. Horrible name. Horrible name. Good name. Uh, good songs. But uh, so it seems like a lots of stuff just gets recycled. There are musicians and musical artists and songwriters are coming up and that's the stuff that they grew up with. So that's the stuff that they want to emulate. So I don't, I don't have a problem with it. Um, this song, this track in particular, um, I, I picked it from among other you know stuff. I knew I wanted to do Manhunter. I picked this one a because it's called Graham's theme, and I like the idea of it being a theme of the, uh, if not the movie, at least the character. Um, but it felt uh, up until the drums and the guitar come in, which I still like, but those elements feel more '80s to me, just in terms of the production of them, the mm-hmm. way they, they sound. Yeah. Up until then, it really does feel like it could have been on the Drive soundtrack. Oh, yeah. You know, it has this sort of, there's this, like, uh, you know, moody intensity. Like, it always feels like you're on the verge of a revelation with the, with these synth sounds. It's it's. Um, and then, uh, by the way, over the course of that track, Will has a revelation. Mm-hmm. And so, um, it's. I found it, yeah, I mean, the drums, like, they... they they announce what time this was made, <laughs> right. but that doesn't necessarily make it dated. Um, there is a, like, I think good music will remain, will remain good, maybe in a, in a slightly different are, way. Uh, uh, apart from the composition, there are just certain production recording trends that were in vogue at oh, that yeah. time that make those drums and the guitar sound a certain way you wouldn't necessarily hear necessarily hear that's today. true there's a ton of overproduction in the 1980s there's always people who like to say oh 80s 80s music sucked but then there, people have said the same thing about music in the 70s people said the same thing about music in the 60s there's great music in every decade you just got to know where to look for it yeah but yeah having said that there was like so much music was overproduced in the 80s there were great songs but they were buried under layers of overproduction uh i don't 
I don't necessarily want to get too into it uh, here because uh, I, there's, there's a lot that I could talk about it. But let's stick to this particular piece at hand. I'd like to talk a minute about the composer, uh, Michelle Rubini, who was also formerly known as Mike Rubini back in the 60s when he was a member of the Wrecking Crew. I don't know if you guys were aware of that. I but, didn't know. Uh, that. You know, he was the, the legendary group, core group of uh, Los Angeles studio musicians who played on dozens, literally dozens, of some of the greatest songs in pop music history. And you're talking about like uh, Hal Blaine, legendary drummer, Carol Kay on bass, uh, Glenn Campbell uh, played guitar for the Wrecking Crew before he branched out and as a, a solo artist. And uh, Leon Russell and Mike Rubini uh, played keyboards. Mike Rubini played on records by the Righteous Brothers, such as uh, Unchained Melody. He played uh, with uh, Ike and Tina Turner, uh, Sonny and Cher, the Monkees. He worked on uh, Stranglers in the Night for Frank Sinatra. So th- this guy has <laughs> an incredible uh, background uh, behind him. So that's I, I thought that was that was really I, I and I didn't know that about him until I, I did a little looking up. Uh, one thing that I spotted right away though about this particular piece, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say that he's deliberately doing something naughty, but uh, hardcore Pink Floyd fans or maybe even casual Pink Floyd fans will probably be able to notice right away that definitely in the opening couple of minutes of this song. The chord progression is exactly the same as the song Comfortably Numb that closes out side three of The Wall. Here's, huh. uh, here's the thing. Here's what's fascinating, West. <laughs> David, you can listen in. <laughs> I di- I'm a Pink Floyd fan. I did not catch that. However, Comfortably Numb has been stuck in my head the last 24 hours. Well, maybe now you know why. <laughs> maybe now I know That's why. Awesome. Oh my gosh, West, <laughs> you've blown my mind. Yeah, you know, uh, those of you who have access to uh, to that song by Pink Floyd, go do a side by side comparison. See for yourself. I, I, and again, I'm not trying to cry foul on uh, Mike Rubini. Uh, it, there's all kinds of chords lying around, and there's numerous instances of uh, people using chord progressions that suddenly they uh, remind somebody of another song there are some instances that there are deliberate rip-offs and some instances you could say was a complete coincidence like when george harrison used the chord progression from uh, he's so fine and his song uh, my sweet lord and he ended up getting sued and he lost the lawsuit but i genuinely believe it. he wasn't deliberately setting out to rip off this song it probably just it's something that he's it remembers it from his youth and and it just unconsciously came back to him that can happen Mm -hmm. all right i think you're up next okay so uh, i guess i wasn't planning on this uh, or i wasn't making the conscious thought um i guess i'll be going chronological order as well so i mentioned earlier that there are composers that maybe have uh fallen into complacency over the course of their career, and they kind of resort to the same old bag of tricks and stuff like that. Um, Danny Elfman is somebody that, I believe I said this last time uh, we did this, that he's a he's a composer that anytime you see his name pop up on a film, usually, not always, but um, most of the time these days when you see his name pop up, you're like, got it, I know what I'm getting. <laughs> Uh, he is a brand just as much as, as Tim Burton is at this point, you 
I associate the two. When I see Danny Elfman has done something not for Tim Burton, I think, oh, hey, look who's branching out. <laughs> but then he still he still brings that same quality to it. Um, and I feel like he just doesn't surprise me anymore. I believe that I think the last time. Yeah, the last time we did this, I played something from Danny Elfman as well. I wish I had remembered that. Uh, <laughs> in which uh, he did something from he. It was this theme from A Simple Plan, which didn't sound a lot like him. But probably my favorite score of his is from Batman Returns, 1992, uh, a film that I, at the time, liked and have grown to, I think, love uh, the more I've fallen in love with German Expressionism and recognize that, oh, this is a film that's not even, they're not even trying to hide it. There's a character named Max Schreck. And and uh, the penguin couldn't look more like uh, like uh, Doctor Caligari, um, and it might as well have been shot in black and white, except for Catwoman's lips. So, uh, but one thing that's specifically interesting about it is that there are three main characters. One could argue four with uh, Shrek in there, but um, but you've got Batman, Catwoman, Penguin. Now, Batman already had a theme. Uh, and so that shows up throughout the throughout the score, uh, but he has a but there's a theme for Catwoman and there's a theme for Penguin. I was torn between which one to go with because the Catwoman theme is to me so tragic and it's all strings, yeah, um, giving it this high pitched uh, almost a like a cat screeching quality. Um, so I almost picked that, but I chose instead to go with a track called "The Cemetery," which uh, runs uh, runs over. Um, several sequences uh and it culminates in uh the penguin kind of putting on this show where he's you know in front of reporters he's visiting his parents at the cemetery and all that uh you find out he he already he already knew who his parents were and this is all kind of a show but there's a lot of emotional uh beats in that um and you get all of them in this track. You get the suspicion of what if Penguin knows who his parents are, then why is he in the Hall of Records just writing down names? Turns out he wants to kill all the firstborn children in the city. Uh, but yeah, it's just there's it's it's and I I find the Penguin's theme to be so so sad, and the character himself is rather pathetic, and there's a there's just a very I don't know. There's a very, I'll say melancholy again, but it's somehow even darker than that. There's just a very dark and depressing quality to, to the penguin theme. So, uh, we will play it now. This is, uh, the cemetery from Batman returns.
Okay. You guys have anything to say about it? <laughs> you know, um, actually, I I was uh, I was glad that you picked that one over the the Catwoman theme because yeah, uh, they're both really good. But I also feel like the Catwoman's uh, theme in Batman Returns is a little more obvious, and I think it gets more play than the Penguins. Mm. So I think you're you're highlighting uh, a theme that I think doesn't really necessarily get as much attention in this movie. So I think that's that's a good thing for all of the listeners. Um, also, I'll say that as far as Danny Elfman surprising you, I don't know if you've seen the uh, the Errol Morris documentary, uh, Standard Operating Procedure, Mm-mm. but Danny Elfman does the music for that. I almost, I was, uh, he was on my short list okay. for, uh, with uh, the music from that film because it is very different. Yeah. Uh, not completely different, but very different from what he gives most other directors. Um, I, I feel like... Elfman really sort of wanted to to give Errol Morris some more of like what he usually gets when he works with Philip Glass. So, mm-hmm. but it's not like a straight emulation of Philip Glass. It's sort of like Danny Elfman trying to be Philip Glass, and this is what I came up with, and here you go. But it's it's very intriguing, and it's it's mm. very atmospheric, and it's it serves the movie very well. So that's something that uh, you know well, maybe I'll bring it in next time. But uh, yeah. uh, if you want to hear something. Relatively different from and that Danny film Elfman. somewhat recent, like in the last two, three years, maybe no, a little further back, longer than that. Yeah, two thousand six or something. Oh, like okay, two thousand six right. or five. But it's a very good movie. Okay, okay. Well, I think we're. Do you have more? To, you kind of set up. You said everything. Yeah. Uh, Did beforehand. you have anything to say about it? I wrote, I wrote down Danny Elfman. <laughs> <laughs> so you know who it is. Okay, <laughs> but I guess I think what I meant by that is that it is. Um, uh, he's one. Of, you mentioned Philip Glass, but Danny Elfman is also one of those sort of, I guess you could call them auteurist composers. You really, yeah. you really can't pick out his music and say that's that's that guy. Yeah, and this, and that's the thing is, I was reluctant to pick this track because so it does, or or anything from Batman Returns because so much of it feels like what we know him to be. But that's the thing is, this movie is now twenty one years old. At the time, we had. You know, Danny Elfman, he did, you know, Beetlejuice, Batman, Dick Tracy. Edward Scissorhands. And Edward Scissorhands. Yeah, yeah. And so um, so he was still kind of a – he was certainly making his mark. And people were starting to, to catch on to what he was and, and how he – you know, and what his music was. But the thing that gets me when listening to this, especially in the context of modern superhero movies – this is music from a superhero movie. <laughs> this is from a Batman film. And while I do like a lot of what Hans Zimmer does in the Nolan films, like, this is... What? Like, this doesn't sound right. This music... And just... And and that's, the, that's kind of the general thing with Batman Returns in general, is this was a superhero movie. Yeah, well, it's because the first one was so successful, and then they basically just sort of gave Tim Burton a blank check to do whatever yeah. he wanted and he just automatically took it everything you know, yeah. just That's the production get... design the music the performances the characters just took everything into a darker direction and I, I think it's it's the more interesting for that no oh, absolutely I, I think in so many cases where I find where I enjoy a movie's sequel more than its original it's because of that situation where the first one was so 
successful, they said, do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. And that's how we got this. That's how we got... I mean, I, I like The Dark Knight better than Batman Begins. Yeah. Um, my number one example is Gremlins 2, which, as much as I love Gremlins, I think Gremlins 2, the new batch, is far and above the superior movie because it's so batshit and has so little really thematically or atmospherically or aesthetically to do with the original gremlins uh i've managed to bring up gremlins again in a music episode (laughs) well and and uh and burton's you know the first batman movie it's very good i go back and forth because i do love joker i think he's done very well by nicholson but you do you look at it and compare like there are there are prince songs uh, in the first Batman, right. you know, and I think that's they're not his I decision, think, right? Yeah, and I think they're pretty good. But like, compare that where they're still clearly trying to, like, the Warner Brothers kind of hedging a little bit and be like, okay, we, well, we got to have music that people recognize, right? And from a musician that's proven and and all that. And then they're like, well, this was a monster hit, so just do what you want. And it's almost like like Tim Burns, like. Oh really? Okay, <laughs> I'm going to put that to the test, and you'll never work with me again. But uh, and actually, that's that, that's another good point that you bring up: the use of Prince in the first movie, which again was something that was completely foisted upon him. But then in Batman Returns, there is also a song in that movie, and that's by Susie and the Banshees, mm-hmm. which is I think not on anybody's list in Hollywood for a, a, <laughs> yeah. a band to to do a song for a major Hollywood motion picture. I like the song, I like the performance, but. Yeah, that's that's something that he would not have been able to get away with at all if the first Batman movie hadn't been as successful as it was. Yeah. So I think it it gave the success of that first film gave both Tim Burton and Danny Elfman room to explore. And I I was looking up some stuff. Uh Batman Returns has twice the amount of music that average films did at the time. Huh. Like it's a 90-minute soundtrack. Wow. So That sounds about right. All right, what's next uh, for West? Oh yeah, West. Okay, um, uh, for the sec- my second uh, selection, I would like to uh, call everyone's attention to uh, an incredibly obscure film music composer, Paul McCartney. <laughs> now, I, look, I'm right. You yeah, all you said, know him as a Beatle, you yeah. know, or, or as a member of Wings, or you know, in his solo career. Very, I don't, I don't know how many people are familiar with the fact that uh, he wrote a film score while he was still a Beatle. As a matter of fact, hmm. you know, they were they this is in the period where they had just gotten off of the uh, the merry-go-round of constant touring after some of the the things that had happened to them in 1966 and they decided they were going to lay low and they were going to take a break and you know, uh Ringo went off and sat around in a corner probably and I'm not sure what George was up to. I know John Lennon went off and accepted an offer from Richard Lester to go to Spain and uh, take a role just purely acting in a movie called How I Won the War, which uh, I'm not a big fan of. And Paul McCartney accepted an offer from uh, John and Roy Bolting, the Bolting brothers, who are, I guess, are a very popular and successful uh, uh, film, uh, sorry, uh, filmmaking team uh, from England in the, the 50s and, and 60s. Uh, I only know one other movie that they did, which was like, I believe it's called Seven Hours to Noon, which um, it won an Academy Award for. Sounds like about 5 a.m. Yeah, it's 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 a very suspenseful uh, story about it. You know, the scientist uh, grabs a nuclear device and puts it in a suitcase and it's going to blow up London and they got to find him. Um, but how much time do they have to find him? Uh, I can't remember. OK, I, but it was it was a very good movie, though. I And then this movie that uh, the Paul McCartney scored, however, is, is it's not that good. It's a movie called The Family Way. And it's a sort of kitchen sink 
drama about a working class uh, bunch of people. There's a young couple played by uh, Haley Mills is, is the, the the young girl and uh, a young uh, actor named uh, Hewell Bennett. Uh, they play a young couple barely out of their teens uh, who get married. And then they're going to go off on a honeymoon. It's, it's like a package honeymoon. But then somehow there's like a ripoff involved and they can't go on their honeymoon. And so they got to stay in uh, you know their, their little English town and they're living with his parents. And for some reason, they do not consummate the marriage. I guess the idea was that they were going to consummate the marriage once they're off uh, gallivanting around Europe on their honeymoon. And... So they can't, they don't do it. They don't, or they can't, or they won't. I'm not sure what's going on. Maybe it's like a British thing that I don't know Mm -hmm. what it is, but basically, and then the whole town, just sort of the whole village gets, gets wind of this news. And everybody seems to know that this couple is married and they haven't done it. (laughs) And that's what the movie is about. (laughs) That's funny. And uh, the Bolting brothers invited Paul McCartney to uh, take a crack at uh, composing for film. And, so he accepted. And so the result is the score for the family way. Now, one thing everybody should keep in mind is that I don't know if any of this has evolved since then. But at that time in the 60s, the Beatles could not actually write down musical notation. They couldn't read music. They couldn't write music. But that's where the, their secret weeping comes in. And that's George Martin, uh. who is uh, really uh, this is almost practically an excuse for me to talk about George Martin, who uh, he is the fifth Beatle. You know, some people will tell you that it's Brian Epstein and some people will say Billy Preston or maybe Eric Clapton. But no, uh, George Martin was the guy because any time that the Beatles had some kind of weird thing that they wanted to add into uh, to, to a song, George Martin was the guy who could do it because he was a trained composer. And so Paul McCartney could, you know, he could sketch out ideas on a piano or on a guitar or, or something like that. But with this score, which, you know, has uh, brass, it has strings it's got you know you get the whole magilla as far as uh, orchestral uh, compositions are concerned he doesn't know how to play those instruments he doesn't know how to write for them he'll come up with something but then it's up to george martin to translate that for musicians so that they can actually play the stuff mm-hmm. and so he george martin produced this stuff and the, the music is credited to the george martin orchestra hmm. uh and i think that a lot of the music is is very lovely, and and I I don't want to take away credit from Paul McCartney because he does have a knack throughout his life for coming up with uh, adorable, gorgeous melodies that you can't get out of your head. It's just the lyrics that are. <laughs> but luckily, you don't have to deal with any lyrics in the family way because it's just a score for a movie. Um, one last thing I'll add though is uh, there is a feature length documentary called "Produced by George Martin" that I would heartily recommend that everybody see because the guy has had an incredible career not just producing for the beatles i mean he's but also writing game of thrones yeah he did all those game of thrones (laughs) books and no that's george railroad martin Ah. Um, but i mean you know he's he's produced uh you know cheap trick and he produced america and he's produced uh, ella fitzgerald he uh, before the beatles he worked on all those comedy records with uh, peter sellers and and the goon show so he's had just an incredible life an incredible career uh an amazing body of work but uh, so this is uh, an opening piece from the film. This is for the scene where the couple actually gets married. And like I said, it's a, just a really great sort of beguiling melody played by uh, the brass uh, in this piece. Uh, it doesn't have a name. Oddly, if none of the pieces in the score have a name, it's just the family way one through 13, I think. 
and this is by Paul McCartney. So bad with lyrics, he couldn't even bother coming up with names for the tracks. There you go. You know, John was was off in Spain. What are you going to do? So, yes, from the film uh, The Family Way, this is The Family Way number one. Okay, so um, I think uh, what I wrote down, uh, or my thoughts on this, I didn't know what the movie was about until you told me, and I'm surprised because it, it, <laughs> this doesn't sound like something that's about what you said, or that it's scoring a wedding sequence, because it is, um, I mean, it has this sort of, I think, um, uh some some elements of it have the sort of marching band type quality mm-hmm. that I think you found in some of the Beatles work as well. And, but it's like it's kind of it's kind of groovy as well. <laughs> yeah. In a way that I wouldn't expect a, a a wedding scene to be. Yeah, there there is a love theme. Uh I can't remember what number it is, but it was actually released as a single under the title Love in the Open Air, which is uh, very uh, uh lovely and lilting and and probably would sound more like what this movie is about, but I just I liked this other piece of music. I, I think it's it felt more like a movie score, whereas the the love in the open air piece really just sort of felt like an instrumental Paul McCartney composition. And I, I really just sort of wanted everybody to get an idea of Paul McCartney as a film composer because it's not something that, like I said, a lot of people are, have have that familiarity with that side of him. Any thoughts that you wrote down? Uh, not that I wrote down, but I do remember just thinking that it was, uh, and I can't think of the word now, but just 
there is a almost a for lack of a better term a playful quality to it yeah um that made me feel because i hadn't heard of the film uh i didn't know that paul mccartney had ever done a film score um but it did make it did make the proceedings feel delightful uh and i just and that's the thing you just like you describing the movie and then having heard that piece of music probably feels like man I feel like I would really enjoy that movie, but you've seen it and you say that it's not very good. No, it's it's a good movie. It's just the subject matter is wholly inexplicable to me. Again, I don't, I don't, I don't get it. Like I said, I don't know if it's a British thing. Uh, I don't know if maybe because I mean, look, uh, I'm an Hispanic male, and I know from multiple generations of Hispanics living under the same roof, and we don't have any trouble doing anything. So, it, it could just be a British thing. It could be a white people thing. I don't know. <laughs> But uh, it could be there's there are times when uh, like Jen and I will be uh, like visiting uh, like relatives or something like that. And she's like, ah, we, you know, it's an old house. It's noisy, <laughs> you know, and just well, uh, that, uh, that was that was early on. Now it's just like, what? What the hell? You know, who see, cares? I, don't, I think there's also this is I don't want to get too graphic. But when I'm staying in someone's house, I, uh, I, I don't want to do that because it's like it's their bed and their sheets and stuff. I don't want to They're gonna wash them anyway. All right. <laughs> yeah, but I'm not talking about visiting someone's house and staying overnight. I'm yeah, talking yeah. about a bunch of people just living together. Yes, so. yes. I guess there is that. Yeah, I don't know. What, yeah, never mind. No, but you know what? I was, I was going to say stuff, but I realized my mom occasionally listens to the show. I don't know if the film is, is commercially available at the moment. It's definitely not available in any form on on Netflix. But, you know, it it's worth a look. Just to... to, to, to Get a, another a, a point of view of uh, human existence. If you want to see, you know, British working class life in the mid '60s, uh, this is one take on it that is is kind of intriguing. So I'll go next. Um, uh, this is a, this is from a movie that I've been thinking about a lot recently because um, uh, listeners who have been listening in recent months know that I uh, was very excited at the LA Film Fest to see Winter, Winter in the Blood because that's the um, the the Smith Brothers. F- 11 years later follow up to to a movie called The Slaughter Rule um which which I which I loved and um uh this it, it's a it's a great soundtrack both the score and the um the songs that are used uh and but this is the one track that I associate it with it with the most um it's by here's another thing I've realized. I mean, you mentioned Mike Rubini being part of the cutting the the cutting crew, not the cutting crew, the writing crew. Um, uh, but uh, you know, last time I picked uh, I picked John Bryan and I picked Damon Albarn. Like I seem to have something for people who have careers in like rock or popular music, moving into movie scoring. And so this score, the score for the Slaughter Rule, was done by Jay Farrar, who um, is uh, if he is known. To you is probably known for having been in Uncle, Uncle Tupelo, um, uh, you know, uh, which was the band that Jeff Tweedy was in before Wilco. Uncle Tupelo broke up, and Jeff Tweedy formed Wilco, and Jay Farrar fo- formed Sunvolt, and then had his own solo career, and uh, that included doing a movie score. Um, and uh, uh, again, there's a lot of short pieces. They're mostly pretty just short things that he that he wrote that appear throughout the movie but this is the one that i always think of first it's called highwood (laughs) 
All right, what do you guys? What do you guys think of this? I remember track? just in in listening to it, it just it reminded me of, and this I don't want to sound negative when I say this, but it reminded me of of a handful of other pieces of music from similar movies that show uh, sort of a like rural small town Midwestern life, um, and the the piece of music itself is very simple not to imply that people you know that those people are simple no, no, but no. um but the the piece of music just it's it seems uncomplicated but there's still like an emotion to it which is kind of how i would describe the film itself um not that it's uncomplicated it's emotionally incredibly complicated but it it Seems uncomplicated. It's right. The life seems simple. The life of these people. I don't know, have you seen the film The Slaughter Rule? No, I hadn't even heard of it until you you brought me this piece of music. It's good um, stuff. So. Well, um, well, yeah. The the lives of these people do seem right. Uh, simple. And in another version of the word, David Morse's character could be seen as somewhat simple. Yeah. Um, until you realize there's a whole lot going on there um, that maybe even he doesn't really understand. Yeah. Um, uh, anyway, West, what did you think of uh, having not been familiar with the movie? What did you think of the music? Yeah, just the, taking the music by itself. Uh, I like the the music. It's got a nice tune. It's folksy, but there is a sort of sort of undertow of drama to it mm-hmm. that I well, it, I does get, that, it has a very conspicuous choice of stopping in the middle <laughs> and then having that sort of swell, and then it comes back full force. Yeah, it just it actually sort of intrigued me in terms of wanting to see the film. So I, I'm probably going to check it out one of these days. Uh, you know what it reminds it, it As much as I love the film, the music reminds me of a scene from a different film, which is the opening sequence of David Gordon Green's Undertow, which is Jimmy mm. Bell running barefoot through the countryside. Ugh. <laughs> well, let's not talk about him stepping on the nail, which I just did. Ew. But um, uh, it always reminds me of that, of that having that sort of... Um, uh, a, a sort of distilled Americana, but also having this uh, determination. That, I mean, that, that's the notes it, I made. Is that it feels like a very determined piece of music. It like reminded me going of, somewhere. I, I feel bad saying this piece of music that came from a movie that was released before Undertow and before <laughs> Winter's Bone, uh-huh. which is, and it reminded me of something out of Winter's Bone. Yeah. Um, and I say that in the best possible way. There is a determination to it. There's also this kind of for lack of a better term, backwards folksy quality to it. So it's like decept it seem it's deceptively simple but in, incredibly complicated. And yeah, there's a number of um I'm not sure if this was widely listened to or uh, but there are things um that have come since this that had reminded me of it. There's um the piece of music used in the um uh, Deadwood episode. Uh, it reminds me of Deadwood as well. Yes. Um, uh, oh, now I can't remember the name of the episode, but it's the one. Spoilers for actual history. The one where Wild Bill Hickok gets shot, and that sequence starting with Jack McCall shooting him, and then it, slow motion as he tries to run away, yeah. and that and and people are chasing yeah. him down while other people around the town are realizing what's happened. Yeah. That it's, music was also used in The Insider. Was it? Yes. Oh, so that then that then that music does predate. For us, music. Yeah, I guess it does. Yeah. All right. I guess I'm wrong. I didn't know that. (laughs) Uh, All right. What do you have next? All right. Next is okay. So you mentioned drive and the use of like synth and just sort of 
instrumentation or maybe just uh i don't know maybe just a mentality that's kind of older um and i've been a fan of cliff martinez for a while without really knowing it uh back from back when i bought the score from sound uh, the the soundtrack sorry the score the, from sound- the soundtrack score for, the movie yeah yeah the soundtrack from the score is what i meant to say that's not true it's not even the score um from uh, traffic Uh, that had what I thought was a very, at times, otherworldly quality to it while being, I thought, very firmly rooted in our gritty reality. And as time has gone on, uh, he did the score for Drive, and I really enjoy it. He did the score for Arbitrage, which I thought was really great. He does... Yeah, that was good. He's he's getting a lot of work these days. Um, and I will say, uh, I downloaded some of his stuff and I uh, put it together in like a mega mix. And there is no better music to drive around Los Angeles late at night to <laughs> than a Cliff Martinez soundtrack. Um, and but I will mention that uh, probably my favorite sound, uh, my favorite score of his is um, from Narc. The oh the shoot, Joe no, Carnahan. Joe Carnahan. Thank you. Um, a film that I still to this day love and loved at the time as well um, and that in itself is kind of a th- the film itself is kind of a throwback to the, the 70s um, and what I like about this piece of music you know what actually we'll play it first and then we'll we'll uh, talk about it after that so, so wait, say the name of the track I don't remember exactly did you write it down I sure did it's something with kick my ass. It's kick my ass in the morning. Yeah. So ladies and gentlemen, here is kick my ass in the morning. Thank you. 
Okay. So uh, what I like about that, it's uh, I'm reminded years ago I uh, I was watching an interview with John Williams in which he was talking about the Jaws score and that when he came up with the, you know, the two notes that we all know about, you know, with Jaws and that it's very primal and simple, which is what a shark is. It's just pure instinct. And he said that like he could just keep that going, and then he could he could do a lot of music around that. Yeah, and that gave him keeping that gave him the freedom to do other things as well, while still maintaining menace. He didn't have to keep recreating it. Uh, and then depending on like if if Quint is confronting the shark, then it will have kind of that playful pirate qui- uh, quality to it. But it'll be different than if the shark is is you know attacking the beach and in that instance the the shark is always the constant and i was reminded of that with uh with this track which i guess this is kind of the the theme from from narc it shows up a few times uh, over the course of the score and um what i like about it is there's and I, i i i'm terrible at identifying instruments but there is a very low con- consistent quality to it and there's a lot of instrument instrumentation around it but it's this constant determination and if you've seen narc you know that at the very least that both the main characters are very determined but ray liotta is a f- his character is a force of nature and that and this piece of music really just it's propulsive. It's it's an investigation. He will ke- he will keep coming at you until he gets what he wants. But you know uh, the, the note that I made is that it very much has to do with that propulsiveness, that d- determination, uh, and that very serious tone. But the thing that uh, also struck me is that more than I talked about the the Paranorman song being more um, suited for lyrics than anything else. I feel like kick my ass in the morning is probably the most danceable thing oh, yeah. that, that, we're, that we're hearing all day today. Like I was actually, I was like sitting at my computer and I was like, I could actually see myself kind of grooving along to this. Yeah. It, 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 maybe that's part of, you say it's good for driving at night. Like it has that, it, you can really get into it yeah. uh, in a way. And when you listen to it, it does give you a sense of purpose. It makes it, you feel like you're like, Whatever I'm doing, I should probably go a little bit faster. <laughs> but I'm sorry, Wes, you were going to say something. No, just, what I like about Cliff Martinez's music is that it's never really super ostentatious. He yeah. he doesn't really, in all the stuff that I've heard, because he's done a bunch of scores for uh, Steven Soderbergh over the years, mm. uh, among other people. But it's just, uh, I, you never hear him really going for some kind of big, grand orchestral statement. His music really is more than a lot of other composers is more integrating into whatever is going on with the movie. Mm-hmm. It's never just something that, that sticks out. It's always just sort of right there in the mix with all the other elements. And I think that's, that's one of the things I, I find admirable about Martinez. Mm. So, okay. Uh, that's, that's all I have to say is that, uh, I don't know. It just, I, I find myself really liking it. it's, it's, um, uh, you know, not to play favorites, but of all the things I hadn't thought about before that you guys picked, this is the one that probably sticks out to me oh, okay. the most. Good. It's probably that danceable quality. Yeah. I feel you like don't, that's what I look for. You don't for. dance anymore, David. <laughs> yes, I do. Oh, okay. <laughs> Just um, not around other people. <laughs> I, I I try to, actually, if I can, um, but uh, I don't get that many because I have 
you know, social anxiety. I don't often find myself in situations where dancing is happening. But there's weddings. I dance at weddings. Mm-hmm. I dance when I can. But I do find myself... David, when you when you get married, are you going to play Kick My Ass in the Morning I hope at your so. wedding? <laughs> I hope so. Um, uh, but uh, this is uh, getting away from movies. We're still talking about music. I, I find myself being... Uh, caring less and less about mu- music that affects me intellectually and more about music that affects me viscerally. And maybe that's why this got got to me so much because yeah. I, I could... I feel like I could feel it in my gut more than in my brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I and I find that happening with a lot of the music that I listen to these days. I'm not spending a lot of time listening to heady stuff. I'm, I'm listening to more pop and dance and, and also stuff like metal that's very, uh, very visceral. Mm-hmm. Oh. Uh, oh, quick trivia note. Uh, Cliff Martinez is the second person that we've discussed in this episode who is also a member of the Rock and or Roll Hall of Fame. Oh, no, I didn't Wait, know who that. was the first? Macrobini? <laughs> Why, you little... <laughs> <laughs> of course it was... Uh... No, I was going to keep going. <laughs> no, uh, Cliff Martinez uh, was a founding member of the Red Hot Chili Peppers. So I did not know that. He was their drummer. Uh, they, they, for a long time now, it's been, what, Chad Davis, I want to say his name is? So, I mean, he's been in there so much longer that you, know, you don't think of anybody else being in the band. But he was their... Yeah, Cliff huh. Martinez was their original drummer. Hmm. So when they got inducted into the uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, he was right in there with them. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. He and Flea have both gone on to things that I think are good, despite having come from the Red Hot Chili Peppers. You know what? Okay. <laughs> who are, so, who are I, maybe my least favorite band of all time. I'm not a big fan of uh, the Chili Peppers, but I was talking about this uh, at uh, Comic-Con with uh, friends of the show, Josh Long and uh, Kyle Anderson. Uh, they have a song, the name of which I cannot recall. It's the song that they wrote for Coneheads. Okay. You know the one I'm okay. talking about? It's so wonderful. <laughs> it's a really great song uh, that I, it's like, it's so good. Like, I feel like it just, it didn't originate with them and just like, and they wrote it for Coneheads and I, wa- <laughs> and I went in and watched the, af- directly afterwards, I went and watched the video on uh, the music video on YouTube and the music video is really good. And I just thought, Coneheads is itself an awful film, but it inspired Two really solid works of art, yeah. which was the music video to this really great song. I love when bands that I don't care about, like... Oh, I, mean, well, I talked just last week about that Miley Cyrus song, We Can't Stop. I'm not going to go out and buy Miley Cyrus's discography. Yeah. But I will listen to that song. For as long as I live, I will return to this song. Because yeah. it has affected me so much. Uh, I, I, I love that idea of like someone... Uh, just being, it's almost like this is a, a nerdy uh, Harry Potter reference, but it's like Professor Trelawney in Harry Potter, who's like the psychic who is bullshit most of the time, mm-hmm. but actually had that one like yeah. vision that was actually super important. That's what Miley Cyrus "We Can't Stop" is for me, and maybe that's what this Red Hot Chili Pepper song is for you. I think we can all agree that Dumbledore is a terrible headmaster, right? <laughs> he has hired so many duds. And I know that he's not in- responsible for all of them, but man, oh man. Yeah, I mean, he's just bad at that part of it. Yeah, but he's a supreme wizard and whatnot. I mean, you think he yeah. should know things. All right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he should have some clarity. I'm glad he died. Spoilers. <laughs> uh, um, uh, you like to give spoilers. I don't know. We're going to talk about that soon, I think. Oh, that's um, right. Yes, well, yes. depending. Anyway, Wes, what's next? I uh, can guess. <laughs> 
because it's narrowed down. <laughs> yeah, I only have one left, and this is uh, it, it's kind of funny that we were talking about uh, John Williams uh, earlier uh, because you know this uh, last composer that I'm going to talk about is one of the great one of the greatest of all of the uh, the the Hollywood composers of the, that golden studio era of Hollywood, the 30s, 40s, and so forth. Um, it's Eric Wolfgang Korngold. Now, uh, a lot of people who are like super into Star Wars and might have uh, you know had the opportunity to to read more about all of this stuff might be familiar with the fact that John Williams's score for Star Wars was kind of uh, he was sort of inspired by Korngold's score for a 1942 film called. Wait, now I'm blanking out on the name of it. King's Row. Sorry. <laughs> it's just, you know what the thing is? I've seen King's Row, and it's it's a good movie, but it's not like the greatest movie. In fact, I think by and large the music is one of the most memorable things in it. That and the scene where Ronald Reagan wakes up and realizes that he's lost his legs. Um, it's the one solid moment of movie acting in his entire career. <laughs> but um, did you see? Um what was the movie that people liked that was dumb last year that had Marion Cotillard in it where she loses her legs in a Rust whale? and Bone. Rust and Bone. No, I haven't seen that. Not a good movie. But also has a pretty memorable waking up and realizing you don't have legs anymore scene. I just watched the motion comic of Wolverine versus Hulk, and it starts with Wolverine waking up, realizing that Hulk has ripped him in half and his uh, legs are up a mountain. Yikes. Wow. Yeah. It's pretty intense. So he can... I guess Wolverine can survive anything? Almost anything, as long as his brain's intact. Huh. Yeah. So he's okay. got to get his upper half up He's like hill, a zombie, then. And then he just Kinda, sticks yeah. the lower half of him together, and then it'll just, it'll and then just in, repair itself, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. See, that would be an ordeal, actually. Just <laughs> having to crawl up a hill with no legs to get to your legs. Yeah, yeah that's, that's pretty tough. And then when he gets there, Hulk is waiting, saying, I'm going to eat one of your legs. <laughs> because, and he's like, I don't want to, but if I don't, you're going to keep chasing me. <laughs> and so, which leg do you want me to eat? It's kind of intense stuff. Wow. wow. That's, yeah. that's So this is the story of King's Row? Uh, no. <laughs> not even, not how, many, even how, many, how, how many legs are eaten? <laughs> how many Hulks are in King's Row? <laughs> no, but um, so the thing is, and I, I played... Uh, a version of the uh, the King's Row theme music on uh, the uh, tourcast when we did the episode on Star Wars, just to give everybody a comparison. But what I'm going to play here is a different version of that. It's a version that, to my knowledge, has never been uh, published in a digital format and has been out of print for at least 30 years. Um, back in 1973, when uh, Warner Brothers studios was celebrating their 50th anniversary uh somebody came up with the novel idea over at warner brothers records to release uh two vinyl box sets which are uh pretty remarkable and amazing (laughs) one of them is basically three vinyl albums of film music from the first 50 years of their existence oh my and the other is three vinyl albums of dialogue from Warner wow. Brothers movies. <laughs> and see, here's the thing you have to remember, kids. Uh, we're talking about 1973. Back in those days, if you wanted to hear Lauren Bacall instructing Humphrey Bogart on how to whistle, for instance, or if you wanted to hear Alfonso Bedoya explaining that we don't need to show you no stinking badges, or if you wanted to hear Clint Eastwood asking some punk if he felt lucky, 
you couldn't just pull those DVDs off the shelf and throw them in your DVD player and and thrill to that wonderful dialogue. No, you had to go to those movies or go to a revival house where those movies were playing, or you had to hope that they showed up on TV and you could hear them. So having these records was quite a treat. And these are... Um, I first discovered these albums in uh, the record collection of a f- the father of a friend of mine when I, when I was in high school. His friend of mine, Pat, his dad had this amazing... A huge record collection. My dad also had a huge record collection, but there wasn't nearly as much good stuff in there. I mean, there was like the Simon and Garfunkel album Bookends and the Beatles second album and Bringing It All Back Home by Bob Dylan. But then there was a whole bunch of other stuff that I didn't care about. So like my dad's record collection was like panning for gold, but Pat's father's record collection was like strolling into Fort Knox. Uh, <laughs> I was immediately drawn to these, uh, these albums. Uh, and I swore that they would be mine someday. <laughs> and some years later, uh, I managed to track down a copy of each of them. And like I said, they've been out of print for a long time. And a lot of this stuff has never really been released on CD or through iTunes or anything like that. And this piece in particular is uh, is really special because uh, there have been recordings and versions of uh, uh, the King's Row soundtrack that have been released, including the, you know, the original soundtrack from uh, the movie itself was released. Uh, uh, sections of it were released on a two CD Eric Wolfgang corn gold collection that was re- released by Rhino records in 1996. But this version that we're going to play is a, like a five minute suite of music from King's Row. And mm-hmm. it starts out with a solo piano from Eric Wolfgang Korngold himself playing the theme from King's Row. Uh, the musical director of Warner Brothers Studios at that time was a guy named Ray Heindorf, and he was having a party for Korngold, and Korngold showed up, and as I guess happens in these Hollywood parties, uh, Heindorf said, hey, uh, Eric, why don't you play us some of your stuff? And he sat down and started playing stuff, and Heindorf recorded it. And that's where this, uh, this bit oh, wow. of the solo piano comes from. Hmm. To me... This is one of the most fascinating things I have ever heard because I don't know how you get from one guy playing a piano, a piece of music to that same piece of music completely orchestrated and performed by 50, 60 musicians in a soundstage at Warner Brothers. I mean, the melody is the same. You, you, you know where it's coming from. You know how this, this, this one thing sounds like this other thing. But to me, it's like some kind of alchemy, how you get from a melody played on a piano to the same melody just exploding out of this entire orchestra. I don't know how that works. It's, it's just incredible and amazing to me. And like I said, this isn't available anywhere else. And I didn't even play it on the, uh, the, the, uh, because you know, I, I only, we don't have a lot of time and I knew I would only be able to play like a little bit of King's row and then a little bit of star Wars for comparison. Mm-hmm. And I wanted everybody to hear all of this. And so I, this is something that's, I've been saving in my back pocket for a couple of years all in right. hopes that we would be uh, doing this very thing. And now we're doing it. BP so, exclusive. So uh, again, yeah, unless you can track down a copy of this album yourself, or I think that somebody else has uh, sort of, digitize it and put it up on the internet somewhere and you can fall off the back of website for you. But <laughs> uh, other than that, you know, this is where you, you, you can hear this uh, from the film uh, King's Row and from Ray Heindorf's living room. This is Eric Wolfgang Korngold.
Okay, so um, what I uh, I like with the Family Way, I listened to this not having any idea what the movie was about, and also not really understanding that this was a suite, uh, or at least going in, it kind of became clear as you went through that there's like seven movements or something in this um but what is uh how does this music relate to the the tone of the film i guess well that's kind of one of the things that's weird about it that's why i say that the music is like one of the best things in the movie because the music really elevates the film it's really just a, a sort of like a soap opera uh, about a bunch of people in a small town in like the late 19th century and you know they, they fall in love and there's conflicts and stuff like that and a guy loses his legs and, <laughs> but uh, it really just it, it really is kind of like a soap opera to me the, the, the movie itself is not really extraordinary the, like, the, the thing that always stood out about it for me was the music uh, Wolfgang Eric Wolfgang Korngold spent pretty much his entire career at Warner Brothers you know, he they brought him in in the the mid '30s, and he eventually uh, signed a contract. And he he even with his contract, he had so much more freedom than just about you know anybody else who worked there. I mean, there's legendary stories of James people like James Cagney and Betty Davis getting suspended because they didn't want to do something. If Corngold didn't want to score a particular movie, okay, moving on. <laughs> and he spent his entire career there. He was there from the mid thirties, like the late forties. He scored maybe a total of 20, 21 pictures over those years. And when his contract was up, they wanted him to resign very much. And he just said, nah, my work is done here. I got to get back to writing operas and concertos and stuff, because that's what he came from when he was living in Vienna prior to coming to uh, to California to work in, in Hollywood, that's what he was doing. He was working on operas and concertos and symphonies. And as a matter of fact, it was when he came over here in the late 1930s to work on The Adventures of Robin Hood, the Michael Curtiz film, and he won an Academy Award for that score. Uh, just weeks after he arrived here, the Germans invaded Austria and they took all his stuff. He couldn't go back if he, even if he wanted to. It would have been catastrophe for him if he had gone back. He has often said that Robin Hood saved his life. Uh, he, after his contract was up, he did go back to Vienna, but he was only back there for about a year. And anybody who's seen uh, The Third Man knows that Vienna post-war was not nearly the same bright, vivid, wonderful Vienna from before the war. He and his wife stayed about a year and he came back to uh to los angeles he died uh, eventually in 1957 here in uh, in uh, north hollywood as a matter of fact oh wow he's buried in the hollywood forever cemetery huh but he's just one of the most influential and one of the most highly regarded of the uh the the composers of that particular era of hollywood studio filmmaking and again we're only talking about a small handful of scores again like 20 20 scores max steiner worked on like maybe 20 scores a fucking year for crying out loud miklos rosa was another well if anything i i love rosa more than i love corngold that guy worked on dozens and dozens of scores from you know from the 30s and 40s into the late 1970s and early 80s i think it was uh, Eye of the Needle in 1981, but from his, that late period of work, you might remember his score for uh, the 1979 film Time After Time, which is uh, one of his best, actually. It's beautiful and lush and romantic, and that's that's just what Rocha does. It's what he always did, and that's why Nicholas Meyer brought him in. Um, well, definitely, if we, if we keep doing these things, I'll bring in Nicholas <laughs> Rocha one of these days. Uh, uh, yeah, we definitely should. Keep it would, doing it'll this. be very difficult for me to pick one. That's what I always, whenever we've been doing these things, I'm always like, 
on the verge of just bringing in nothing but Roja, and so far mm-hmm. I haven't done it. <laughs> I, I we should definitely keep doing these, but I have the opposite problem because I don't have the same memory for film music that I feel like I'm searching, you know, scraping, searching for things to pick. But then things occur to me. Such as my next pick, we'll get, which we'll get to in a second. Have you ever um, said anything about the King's Room music, though? Yeah, I wanted to say two things. First off, West, I'm sorry. While the music was playing, I accidentally broke all your records. Um, <laughs> but um, sorry about that, buddy. <laughs> you, you dropped into you shadow like in Who's Harry Crumb? <laughs> yeah, for the benefit of our listeners, I, I brought these two Warner Brothers uh, vinyl collections here. I'm yeah, sharing yeah. them with This with... is second week in a row. We said it's too bad we don't have video. Yeah. But I don't want people knowing how much beer I drink on on the podcast. <laughs> See, that's that's blue. That's a blue color. What? Uh, like in the, in this uh, lighting, it's this more is, blue. West, this is a reference to last week's episode. So you're right; it does look more blue in this light. Yeah. But uh, so that was a fir- that was the uh, first thing, the not real thing. Uh, the other thing, and I'm concerned that this will sound insulting and I don't I don't I really don't want it to because I thought the suite was beautiful is it's like if somebody said hey what does music what did old Hollywood music sound like I would play this yeah this is and that that goes that goes towards what you were saying of how influential he was um in that like this sort of thing just set the standard and everybody was basically just conducting to that um, and, and I remember I, 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 I saw Adventures of Robin Hood fairly recently for the first time. And I remember thinking the music was wonderful. And then I watched some special features. Who did that? Was that, who put that out? Um, Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers. Okay. Um, I don't know why I thought Paramount, but yeah, that's to- I'm totally incorrect. Um, but yeah, and they, they do some really good special features and they do have a nice long thing about Gold. I knew his name sounded familiar, but I didn't, I didn't put it together right away. And just about how influential his music in this adventure movie and the movie itself was very influential um but that this music basically let everybody know like all right if you're making an adventure movie music should sound like this um because how else would we know it's adventurous unless we're hearing this and so the just the real i don't know i i will sometimes gravitate towards scores that are more like simple and not quite as lush. Of course I did just play the thing from Batman returns. Um, but there is something to be said for, you know, a giant orchestras all just united in just creating this really beautiful sound. I mean, you know, they could, they could play that on like the classical station that my wife listens to on a regular basis and it would fit right in. It's every bit as beautiful to me as some of like, as like classical pieces of music. Yeah. Well, that's, it's something that I hope never goes away. And I think there's always going to be a place for this, uh, this kind of music in certain films, I mean, not all films, but, uh, it, it's, it was funny that really by the late 1970s, it was kind of a thing that had gone by the wayside. And that's why it was so revelatory for a lot of people. When you, know, you had John Williams, score, for Star Wars, which owes just such a huge debt to Corn Gold, mm-hmm. and as you know, you you can tell from listening to this music, and as you, if you were watching uh, the Adventures of Robin Hood, you can see the similarities there, and it makes a lot of sense. It was an incredibly shrewd move on George Lucas's part to have that kind of music in the film because 
that's your lifeline. That music is your tether to our world. Star Wars is just is wall-to-wall stuff that you've never seen before. Yeah. At least certainly not in 1977 with spaceships and robots and lasers and monsters and all kinds of wacky things. The music is something to ground you. That Everybody at that time, at least, had seen enough old movies on television or had been old enough to have seen those old movies in theaters to know that that music, that's a, that's a button that is being pushed in your soul. Mm-hmm. So that you, it's giving you a clue as to what how you are to to relate to these characters it's not just weird outer space people it's swashbuckling adventure it's it's romance it's drama on the high seas except that the sea is space it's not the ocean Mm -hmm. that's it it was it's it had an incalculable effect i think on on a lot of people and it in many ways star wars the 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 score for that movie single-handedly brought back orchestral composition into hollywood films yeah it's Oh, what was I just about to say? Oh, shoot. Now I don't recall. Well, I'm sure I'll have some. Yeah, yeah, we, yeah, we, we sh- yeah, we should move on. Um, my next choice, uh, uh, like Wes started with a film from last year, I'm going to end with a film from last year um, that uh, I think it was a very divisive movie. Well, it's, it's Cloud Atlas, okay? Uh, it's from Cloud Atlas, which is a very divisive movie. But I think even people who didn't like it tend to agree that the score is is pretty impressive. Yeah. Um, uh, but uh, I'll say I went. I, I listened to the whole soundtrack a number of times um, this week, trying to figure out. I knew I wanted to include something from Cloud Atlas, and I didn't know what to include. And I eventually settled on this title, this track called "All All Boundaries Are Conventions," um, because. It starts off with the same music that starts off the movie. Is the the prelude to Cloud Atlas? I think is what the first track is called, which is just the piano. And this starts off with that, and then incorporates a bunch of other stuff. Um, but I, I'm just saying this by way of saying, if you haven't seen Cloud Atlas, at least go to Spotify and listen to the soundtrack front to back, because this is only some of the amazing, <laughs> what I consider to be pretty amazing music that's mm-hmm. in that movie. And also see the movie if you haven't seen the movie. Um, so. Uh, that's the setup. Let's just listen to the track uh, from Cloud Atlas.
so I think the reason that I um, am so drawn to this score, which is by one of the film's directors, by the way, Tom mm-hmm. Ty- uh, Tickfair, as we learned. We learned from our friend uh, Matthias, right? Matthias. Matthias. Oh, I, I, okay. Uh, we learned from our friend Matthias that his name is pronounced Tickfair. Um, so uh, what, one of the things that I liked about it, something that actually sort of ties into the Star Wars conversation we were just having, is that it's both... Um, it, it, there's a lot of things about it that are very, very classical and very, very, I guess, old school, and also things that are very uh, of the moment. You know, it feels, uh, it feels very informed by. Um, e- even though it's an orchestral score, it feels like this is someone who's aware of the works of, say, Cliff Martinez. You mm-hmm. know, the way that later in the score, when it becomes, you get this thing that you that is. Um, fairly common i think in film scores these days which now we're getting into the territory of my not being able to talk about music very well but the thing where it's like uh, a series of three short notes up and three short notes down it's like you know to to suggest propulsion you know one of the movies that i chose for last the last time we did this was signs which is nothing but those three notes almost like a sped up waltz you know and this this does that this does that a lot and I and I and I feel like that's something that um, that sense of sort of being uh, you know putting these short notes and or, or you know quick notes in quick succession like that is um, almost mimics like the smoothness of um, of a synth line you know where you're getting from note to note with with very little break at all and and so you get that sense of uh constant forward motion at a sustained pace but also great determination you know it feel it feels urgent and yet completely um not uh, what what is the word not not complacent but completely self-confident at the same mm-hmm. time uh but also you have um uh earlier i I'll, I'll go back to those opening notes the piano notes uh, and this will tie back into something we talked about with the Manhunter theme, which is the um, the production aspect of it. Um, it's uh, it, it, it's not just that he's playing, or whoever the piano player is, is playing these short notes that are very, you know, they're very spaced out, so you can hear like the whole note, as opposed to what comes later in the song, where everything's on top of each, uh, of one another. You can hear the whole whole note at a time, and, and it's allowed to breathe, and then move on to the next one. It's not just that he's playing them slowly, but it also feels like it was recorded with the microphone, like inside the piano. Like it's it's really you can feel almost like when you get a close up recording of someone playing acoustic guitar, and you can you can hear their hands sliding up and down the neck of the instrument. I feel like you can you can almost hear like the strings vibrating when he when he hits his notes. Uh, in, in this song and, and so uh, uh i guess in, in summation i'll go i'll repeat myself and say that this piece of music and a lot of the music in cloud atlas feels both uh very classical and very of the moment at the same time thoughts the um the score for cloud atlas i i liked very much i'm okay with the movie i i think that it is flawed and i i, there, I have problems with it uh, i don't dislike it I'm just not wacky for it. I think that a lot of the makeup kind of throws me off. <laughs> yeah, but, I, I, you know what? I love the movie, and I can't argue with any of that. <laughs> but the music is, is wonderful. And actually, I, that, I like that piece in particular that you selected, because I, I think that one piece of music really sort of sums up 
the emotional tone of the entire movie. Mm-hmm. You can just listen to that, and that'll give you an idea of what you should be feeling in the film. But it was also impressive to me because uh, because of who it is. Uh, you know, Tom Tickver, uh, in collaboration with the, the two guys, as usual, is a Johnny, uh, I don't know if it's pronounced Klimek or Klimek, and uh, Reinhold Heil. These three guys... They've done the music for most, if not all, of Tom Tickfer's films. You go mm-hmm. back to Run, Lola, Run, which is basically just all like pretty much like electronic dance music. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is not completely removed from what you have here, but it is, I think, an evolution. So I, I, and I had no idea that they were having that kind of, uh, of, evolution going on because uh-huh. I, I really hadn't I haven't seen any other Tom Tickver films except for Run Lola Run I am I know I'm aware of his other films I just haven't seen them and I was aware that those three guys were doing the music for these films so based on Run Lola Run I figured they were just doing the same kind of music all the time even even when that that one was it Perfume that's the only one of his I haven't seen I think yeah but it seems like something that they could do that same kind of music, but maybe they haven't. I'll have to go back and, and maybe I'll have to, to check it out. Cause yeah, this, this score really, it, it has a, a lush orchestral quality to it. Uh, it's melodic. It's beautiful. And I really didn't know that Tickford was operating on that level. <laughs> so I was, I was pleasantly surprised. All right, here's a here's a weird thing because I love I I own the sound, the the score as well and I think it's really wonderful. I think it's probably the best, and I, I liked the movie for the most part, but I think the score is the best part of it. Um, but uh, although I do enjoy Tom Hanks as the uh, as the gleefully evil doctor uh, on the ship, but um, <laughs> Wait, is that a spoiler? I don't know. In, is it in the book? It's de- that would definitely be a spoiler. You don't know that he's evil till the end. Oh, but he's playing the character so slimy yeah. from the beginning of the movie that maybe that's not a spoiler. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's, yeah, I guess by saying evil, that's a bit of a spoiler. He's at the very least a sleazeball throughout. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, uh, so here's, here's okay, this is, I don't know why, but I keep referencing other other movies. Um, all right. Mr. Holland's Opus. Uh-huh. You know, whatever. Who cares? Not that. Not a great movie. Richard Dreyfuss is really good in it. Um, but I remember in one of the first twenty episodes that you and I recorded, we talked about movies about art and specifically right. pieces of art within a movie. Yeah. And the and so Mr. Holland's opus. It's about this guy who you know is is teaching music, but he really wants to compose. He wants to write you know symphonies and stuff like that. And so. Uh, and then by the time by the end of the film, like all of his old music students get together and and he, you know, conducts this piece of music. And you know, your first thought when you hear it is like, oh, it's a good thing he got that teaching job. <laughs> um, you know, it just that that's that's the pro. You know, that's the problem with movies like that is it better it better be good. But well, the the thing at the end, the thing that he's been composing for years. Uh-huh. I think he calls it like, you know, the American Symphony or something like that. The music, so a guy composing his whole life and trying to capture basically a lifetime's worth of experience and then like everything that piece of music is supposed to represent, it should have sounded like the Cloud Atlas score. Huh. Like it's it has this epic quality 
I mean, you know, so much instrumentation, but it can also be reduced to one piano. Uh, and yeah. there's and there's it's joyous, but it's also very you know it's also sad and tragic at points, and it just it it feels like something that somebody could spend their whole life composing. Uh, well, I mean, the cloud at, the you know there's the score of cloud atlas, cloud atlas, but there's also the cloud atlas sextet, which is a right a thing like Mr. Holland's opus that is written and appears in the movie, but they kind of sidestep it by, A, not ever claiming it as the greatest thing ever. Right. But also, when you do finally hear it, it's... You don't hear that much of it. Yeah. You're, it's yeah. playing over in a, in a record store and Holly Berry and... Um, is that Ben Wishaw uh, in makeup at that point? I think so, yeah. It could be uh, anybody. Are, yeah. <laughs> are having a conversation while it's going on. So they, yeah. they do but it also, pretty well. Plus, it's... I mean, the set, Cloud at the Sextet is one of the tracks on mm-hmm. the CD, and it's good. Yeah. But they haven't built it up throughout yeah. the film. Right. So that by the time you hear it, you don't even really have the opportunity to be overwhelmed or underwhelmed or just whelmed. Yeah. <laughs> and that's and that's the thing is it's for some reason I just felt like that was the best way to describe this music is to repeat I'll I'll repeat myself. It feels like something that somebody has spent their whole life composing and they put their life into it. Which I think is how it should sound. I mean, yeah. Considering the subject matter of Cloud Atlas, exactly. It like this. This is one of the most, it, at the least, at least in its in its ambition, but also in some somewhat in its execution. It's one of the most like epic movies yeah. you could make. Well, I and still think the music has to match it, and ten, it does. Ten months since its release, we should not be over the fact that Cloud Atlas is a movie that exists. Like, that should still be astounding to us, whether you like it or not, because it's... It's it, bullshit when people say it was the worst movie of last year. Like, come on. No, it was it was nowhere near that, but Did it is... Did Adam Sandler do a movie last year? <laughs> <laughs> oh, probably. I don't know. Jack. Well, Jack and Jill was 2011. Uh, we're not gonna... He did That's My Boy last year. Oh, that's right. Okay. Um, but yeah, it is... Uh, I mean, it's a very expensive movie with some big name stars doing things that you don't see them doing yeah. in... In studio produced movies, yeah, uh, it's uh, yeah. I, I think anyone who is invested, who cares about modern cinema, should should see Cloud Atlas. I, I don't think they're going to like it necessarily. Yeah, but it's uh, it's so singular that it it's uh, it's something you want to check off your list. I and think. it's rare to see a movie that is that willing to do the things that it does. Is that earnest? I guess earnest, but also just, I mean, even big movies lack ambition. You know, even big, you know, $200 million budget movies can actually be... Pacific Rims. What have you. Mm -hmm. uh, Can be remarkably low in their ambition. And it, it seems counterintuitive, but it's not. Cloud Atlas... I think it had a pretty high budget. Yeah. And I think it didn't do remarkably well. Oh. <laughs> but that's the thing is just like you you very rarely see somebody really swinging for the fences and that's what Cloud Atlas is. Maybe they struck out, but at the very least like you have to res- you you have to respect the attempt at the yeah. very least. Yeah. Also people should read the novel. It's really great. Don't tell me what to do. <laughs> Um, because the novel, I mean, it's the same six stories, but it's told in a different format. I won't like mm-hmm. go into breaking down what the format is. But um, he also writes, uh, this is something that you kind of get in the movie, but more so in the novel, um, 
you can almost believe that each story is written by a different author uh, mm. in terms of its its style. He really adapts his style to the story he's telling. It's a it's a really fascinating. Uh, I, I compared the book almost to um, compare it favorably favorably. I think it's better than uh, American Psycho, which is almost more an exercise than a story mm. uh, in both cases. But I think um, Cloud Atlas is much more successful uh, in, in doing that. Okay, on to your final piece of music. Yes, all right. So, uh, I did not write the name of it down because I always forget it. You wrote it down. Adagio in D minor? D minor, oh, I had it all except for the, except for the note, <laughs> um, or the key. Uh, so, the, uh, the Danny Boyle film Sunshine, David, you have not seen it, right? I've never seen it. West, have you seen Sunshine? I have, I liked it a lot. Okay, yeah, I... Uh, there's a there's a misstep there at the end when they introduce uh, this new character and suddenly it becomes kind of your for a brief moment a standard horror sci-fi but just for a moment up until then and shortly thereafter uh it's a movie that i just absolutely loved and and i don't necessarily want to like spoil it or spoil it or anything but the the people's their mission is to you know basically jump start the sun like that's uh-huh. that's pretty big that's yeah. a big deal <laughs> and and they they also know that it's very likely that they won't come back or at least not all of them will come back um and so they are and so it basically says like yes any one of us if somebody said would you sacrifice yourself for humanity any any one of us would say well yeah sure but this actually grapples with, well, what does that mean? What does that actually look like? And so uh, Adagio in D minor uh, by John Murphy is one of my favorite pieces of music. It comes at a climactic point in the film, as you might assume. Um, and before I talk more about it, actually, let's listen to it right now.
All right. So the the piece of music there is such that I feel like I don't want to talk afterwards. Um, it's so it's so inherently climactic that so all right this is a weird thing this is on my mind because uh, I'll let everyone a little bit behind the curtain we were recording this right after I got right after I went to a friend's funeral and so I have that kind of thing on my mind at the moment and uh, and I'm gonna bring in some of my uh, spirituality a little bit um I feel like this piece of music is the sound of someone going to heaven. Like th- it has that. The, qu- what What do you got, David? The word I, word I wrote was rising. Yeah, yeah. It just it and I feels seen the movie. So yeah, it feels so triumphant, but it also feels like it, it, like it's so much bigger than any one person. It feels like I'll, I'll use the word redemption. I don't necessarily mean in the spiritual sense. It feels like the redemption of humanity which in the film it kind of is but it's just it's so big that my first instinct is like is it too big and i don't think so i mean i listen to it and i and i and i well up and it gives me a weird kind of hope and it's just a piece of music from a movie and a movie that people didn't really see and who cares but it's just so it, I don't know. I can't. To me, words can't describe it. And maybe some people think it's really overwrought. I'm not sure. But I haven't seen the movie, but I don't think it's overwrought. Okay. I, I find it very moving. Okay. Yeah, I agree. And the thing is, though, that I I realized that this might be familiar with people, even if they haven't seen Sunshine. Because the funny thing is, I was listening to it, and then I thought, wait, this really sounds familiar to me. Even though I had seen Sunshine, I didn't necessarily identify it or associated with that movie. And then I realized, oh, yeah, this has been in every third trailer and TV commercial ever. <laughs> yeah. I okay. believe they used it in the teaser for Man of Steel. They huh. used it in the trailer for Blindness, in the trailer for The Adjustment Bureau, uh, the trailer for uh, X-Men Origins Wolverine. <laughs> and they've used it in, in several TV commercials, and it's been on a couple of TV shows. And it's yeah. like, and the funny thing is, Based on that, you'd think, boy, I'm sick of this. And uh, no, you could pretty much put it in more trailers and TV commercials and I would be fine because it just sounds great. Yeah. In contrast, there is a piece by Philip Glass from uh, the film Poakatsi that has also been used repeatedly in movie trailers. And it's gotten to be a cliche and I'm sick of it. And I love Philip Glass. He's my favorite living composer. But I just want people to stop using this piece of music the same way I want people to stop using Gimme Shelter by the Rolling Stones in every other goddamn movie. I'm not even a big Rolling Stones fan to begin with. I mean, I like them. I'm not crazy about them. But as far as as far as British invasion era bands go, they're not even in my top three. My top three is Beatles, Who, Kinks. Uh, But Gimme Shelter, I'm just when Martin Scorsese himself used it a second time, I was sick of it. So, but that reminds me, one of the things that I decided not to use today because I feel like it's overused is the music from Requiem for a Dream. Mm. Yeah, uh, that's is, another one. Uh, Clint Mansell. 
Yeah, it, and and Which it's, every like every other internet supercut, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, as the music, and it's a good piece of music, but it's folks, great. you're diluting it by putting it in everything, and this is that's sort of one of the dangers and pitfalls of of repetition. Uh, it, it, not just in terms of film music, but just in songs. When you hear songs on the radio, sometimes if you, you play it too much, even if you like it, you can just you, you'll find your it loses favor with you if you you keep getting assaulted with it over and over again. This John Murphy piece, uh, I have not reached that oversaturation point yet because it is, you're absolutely right. It is beautiful. Uh, it's gorgeous. It's uplifting. It's something that you, you could you could play it you know, every day before you step outside your house and you, you feel like uh-huh. you know, you get, you're ready to take on the world. You got pep yeah. in your step. It's th- like I can't be hyperbolic about it enough. Uh, like I mean, I just said it sounds like, you know, a soul ascending to heaven. It sounds like the redemption of humanity. It's the sound of love. It's the sound of like, <laughs> like it's the, it's the music that plays in my head. Like when I kissed Jen for the first time or something like, it's just, it's all of these things. And it, I, I, I'm so, ha- I'm, I'm very happy I picked it and I'm very happy that you guys liked it because I yeah. wasn't totally sure if you I'm were. very happy we're ending on it. Yeah. But we should end because we've gone for two hours. Well, that's two hours. We haven't added in the music yet. Oh my. This is going to be a long episode. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, we gotta, we gotta, gotta go get barbecue. Yeah, we're getting some barbecue. Um, you can find us at battleshippretension.com. If, you know, if somehow you're listening to this the moment we record it, you can find us at Dr. Hogley Wogley's <laughs> Tyler, Texas Barbecue <laughs> on Sepulveda. Um, but you can find us at battleshippretention.com uh, that's where you find all sorts of movie reviews and links to our our podcast and plenty of others including the auteur cast uh, you can email us david at battleshippretension.com or tyler at battleshippretension.com you can follow me on twitter at the pretension and you can follow tyler on twitter at more lessons that's the official twitter of his other podcast more than one lesson uh, which is at more than one lesson dot com. My other podcast is the uh, TV podcast. Hey, watch this with Paul and David. Uh, normally, I like to tell you what we're talking about, but uh, each week, but we're recording this so much earlier that I don't yeah. actually know yet what we'll be talking about uh, this week on the podcast. Talk um, about the bridge. Uh, yeah, maybe we should. Uh, well, uh, I can almost guarantee you that we'll be talking about Breaking Bad. Mm. <laughs> um, uh, as far as what the other one is, I don't know. Uh, you know what else? Uh, well, well, West, I want to ask you where people can find you on the, on the internet. But first, I want to mention that oh, the other thing you can find both in our podcast feed and on the website is uh, audio recordings of of uh, certain selected reviews. And you are the voice of those reviews. Yes, I am. And uh, you know, as always, uh, thank you for the opportunity to do that. Uh, for those writers uh, out there who are you know writing these words that I'm saying, uh, I'm again, I'm not the one who picks them. So you know, don't take it personally if I'm not reading your review. It's not up to me. Yeah. Do you find like <laughs> volunteer for better things? I really, I, I, I like your reading voice so much. I really enjoy listening to my own reviews being read that way. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's it's fun. Like I hear them in a different way. But do you find now often because just of the way this works, you're reading the review before you've seen the movie. Yeah. Um, do you find like? Like you liked Pacific Rim after you had already read my rather negative review of Pacific Rim. Do yeah. you find yourself? Do you feel? Do you feel dirty? Like you shouldn't have read that? <laughs> no, no, not at all. Look, it's just you know, it's it's a job. You know, you give me the words and and I talk them. So oh, we're not 
We're not paying you. <laughs> no, I'm, I, don't I know I said we were a, going to. I should tell you now. <laughs> yeah. No, but it's just it's it's an assignment. I you know it doesn't. I don't feel weird about it. I don't feel insulted. Uh, at best, you know, if it's a movie that I'm looking forward to seeing, and maybe there's something in in the review that sort of spoils an element of the film for me, maybe I'll be a little disappointed about that. But mm-hmm. by and large. I've never been a big anti-spoiler guy in the first place. No. In fact, uh, just to give you an idea of how uh, uh, pro-spoiler I am, uh, just just as a reflex to all these people who were so anti-spoiler about it, I refused to see Cabin in the Woods until I knew every goddamn thing that happened in that movie. <laughs> did you like it? I didn't like it. Tyler did. It was okay. I love it. <laughs> You're both wrong. Get the hell out of my house. I didn't care much for it. It's funny, though. As a, as a comedy, it works. Yeah, I, I laughed a lot. Um, and uh, well, I always think now whenever I read the name, and now I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, but that's the point here. Mihai Melamari Jr., who shot uh, the Master. Oh yeah. Um, I always think like, oh, West had to look up how to pronounce that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it happens sometimes. It, it hasn't been happening as much recently, but yeah, I mean, from the first one was really, uh, Jelko Ivanic. Which oh, is a yeah. name that I've seen a million times. I just yeah. never knew how to pronounce it until I had to look it up. Yeah. But you know, that was the first one. Then there was like an impressive run of weird names and yeah. like, you know, Mia Vashikovska, which it, again I had seen that name before and I'd seen her in a couple of movies. I knew who she was, but it never occurred to me to how that name was pronounced, and then I found out. Well, in the next couple of days I hope you have time to record my Ain't Them Body Saints review. Um and then hopefully we'll get you one that wasn't written by me. <laughs> I, 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 listeners, we're not doing. I'm not just picking my reviews for West to read. It just has worked out that well. The key, for the past few weeks, I've reviewed yeah, just, the big movie. Yeah, as it happens, David just snatches up all the movies that you're interested in. So that's why that's <laughs> happening. So it still reflects poorly on David, but not in the way you thought okay. it did. All right. So West, where else can people find you on the internet? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at the aforementioned uh, Doctor West Anthony. And uh, go to our uh, autorcast.com. That's where you can find uh, the podcast. But you can also go to our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash autorcast. And you can hit the like button there and get updates on all the stuff that we're doing. All right. All right. Well, thank you very much for being here, Wes. This was a blast. Well, thanks again for having me. And thank you at home for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 